All right. Hey, Sego, this is John Gain, and I am joined by Regan DeLoggins, and this is Resistance Radio. Uh, we got a good show uh, for you today. Well, look, we often talk, talk about things that are not necessarily good news, but we're going to we're gonna put a good show out there for you anyway. Um, we, you know, last week we did a, a pitch show for both um, Washington uh, on WPFW and for, uh, for WBAI. Um, so... But I, as, as promised, I, I need to remind people that we are listener support radio and we only can do what we do with your support. So I do encourage people in the New York area to uh, to go to give to WBAI.org or go to WBAI.org and follow the prompts. Or if you are listening in Washington, D.C., that you go to WPFW fm.org and make a contribution and do it in the name of resistance radio with john and regan or sometimes known as the john kane show i don't know why it's still still like that but anyway uh but yeah the resistance radio is is what we are and you know what these stations are resistance radio and we are just one of the programs and uh on these stations and uh and we hope that you will support this program and the station um your Pacific station so all right Re- regan are you are you with me i hope so can y'all hear me okay Yes, I can. It's great. Okay. Uh, as I've mentioned before, we, we still are doing this show um, with uh, COVID protocols, and we are doing them remotely. So sometimes we, we have to do a proper check-in before we can start to make sure that we're, we're all connected electronically as we do this uh, do the show. From I mean, whether, we're, whether you're listening in Washington uh, or whether you're listening in New York, um, I'm here in Seneca Territory. Uh, Regan, you're in Brooklyn, right? Yep, I'm on Canarsie Land in Brooklyn. I'm always all right. here in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> all right, and, uh, and and Reggie's there too. So, <laughs> so, all right. So, I I do want to get into it. <laughs> One of the things that we have to talk about is um, is Deb Haaland's confirmation as the Secretary of the Interior, and I'm and I'm not going to you know, look. We, we've discussed on on this show, Reed and I have about. Our concerns about some of the tokenism that comes with putting native people into positions and uh, and I'm not even going to get into that as much as I'm I'm going to talk about the fact that she is experiencing the typical uh, racism and the typical uh, misogyny at the hands of of the Republicans in this confirmation uh, process. Um, Look. The, these <laughs> these white guys on the right, they just can't get past this idea that there could be anything but a white man in this position, um, as there as they have been since the beginning of uh, of the Interior Department, um, and so you can you can actually hear them embarrass themselves if you listen to any any parts of this thing. Look, we're, and we're going to discuss that, but I'm also going to talk about the Interior Department in general and 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 some of its failings, uh, specifically as it relates to what the Seneca Nation is going through, but um, but let's let's just start with the hearings. Have you have you caught any of that either either the highlights or the lowlights, whatever you want to uh, call them, Regan? Have you caught any of these? Yes, um, I actually watched most of the hearing. Um, which you poor thing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, I I wanted you know I'm very critical of Deb Haaland um, on this radio show and also just in general. Um, and mind you, the, the, my criticism of her is because I, I expect and I, I hold other indigenous women and, and femmes and folks um, at a higher standard um, because, uh, because I am a part of that group as well. And so I, I really am, am very critical of her, her politics because I find them to be incredibly problematic and often at odds as to uh, what it is, what it means to be an indigenous person. So I just want, like, I, I feel like that's necessary to say. But also, I uh, I was really uncomfortable for her in a lot of this process, and not again, not because I agree with her politics. Actually, I wrote really in depth notes because I, I am I have so I have a bone to pick <laughs> with a lot of things that she said. But I was so disturbed by how um, rude the committee was uh, to her, um, how much their blatant misogyny and their blatant anti-Indian uh, thoughts 
and rhetoric are in what is supposed to be this like, you know, safe space, if you will. Uh, And I think it's really telling. It's really telling uh, how far behind people are, even representatives, in terms of what they expect out of indigenous people, what they expect out of um, an indigenous person in politics. And I found it really disturbing uh, that she continued to have to reassert um, her parents as veterans um, in order for them to take her seriously in a lot. And she and she did it multiple times during the hearing where she was like, you know, my mother was in the Navy and my father um, was uh, was a Marine. And she kept having to really prove to this to this group how American she was in order for them to consider her. For this position and it it i haven't seen that with other people of course you know they, they want to make sure that you're a patriot to this to this country if you will but i could it was disturbing to see how often she kept having to reassert how committed she was to settler colonialism in order for them to see her as a viable option and what well, i and, found and, and to that point oh, ahead, and, and to that point i mean so basically what she has to do is confirm that there has been enough separation in her in in the process of assimilation that mm-hmm. that she she no longer has to be considered part of that the tyranny of paganism. <laughs> so she's she's yes. got to get up there and say that yes, I am one of you. You know, I'm even if I don't look like one of you, I am one of you. Here's my here are my parents, you know, credentials here are. are uh, did they did they did they get into religion and that kind of stuff, too? Or, or did they stay away from that one? Um, I didn't. No, no, no. I, I at least from what I've seen, I haven't seen that. Um, okay. But uh, I haven't heard her have to, like, prove, <laughs> prove that she's a Christian. Um, God, I, I hope not. I mean, I, I may have to. It was a lot of footage to watch through. Um, But what I also think is really important is, um, you know, something that was also disturbing for me in terms of her hearing was that uh, she kept saying that she was proud of the bipartisan work that she's done, that she's proud that she has worked with both Republicans and Democrats. And she was really like hammering home that she's a, a person that works with both sides of the line, of the aisle. She kept saying, I, uh, I'm proud that I work with people on both sides of the aisle. And I found that really, um, really disturbing, not just to her political beliefs, but also it, it's I don't think people understand that it should be jarring that we are, that, quote unquote, we I don't consider myself an American, but nonetheless, that we are um dictated by two different parties and that that's actually incredibly problematic that there's only a Republican and a Democratic Party and that there aren't any other parties that have any uh, representation. And it it irked me and made me uncomfortable how she continued to say that she's willing to work with both sides, especially in relation to um, uh, clean and renewable energy, uh, in relation to advocacy for public lands and sovereignty of tribal lands. She continued to assert that she was willing to work with both people, uh, both, you know, both sides of the aisle is the term, uh, the terminology she kept using. And I think that really that that disturbs me. And I also did see that there was quite a lot of criticism uh, after the first hearing of other folks being like we expected her to be less um, accommodating to Republicans. Um, but the reality is that, you know, she's the first indigenous person to be considered for this space. She's the first indigenous woman to be considered for this space. And there's a very particular uh, way that she is navigating her confirmation. And it is the reality for a lot of indigenous women in spaces of power to constantly be having to uh, prove that, uh, that that there's this worthiness that we have the ability to see both sides of the problem. You know, if you yeah, confirm the, the that you are is, more radical the, on one side or the other, then somehow you are seen as, uh, as as incapable of holding a position of power. 
Well, and, and that there's only two sides. There's the there's the Republican yeah. side and the Democratic side. And, you know, there's not even a conversation about the native side. So, I mean, understanding that that much of this is all political theater in the first place. And, and we kind of yeah. know that. But but there is there are insights to be gained from from a lot of this. And, and, and you're right. She has she has had to back away from other claims that she has made about, you know, even, you know, even her. You know, her, her claiming that she the reason she ran for Congress in the first place was because uh, of her experience at Standing Rock. And so now she's got to back away from <clears throat> the position that she she held regarding St- Standing Rock and has had to make it very clear that she's you know, that she's there to promote the, the Biden uh, agenda and 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 that she is going to you know basically conform to the the Democrat Republican dynamic that exists in Washington and. <clears throat> You know, and, and so the the native side, you know, for for all of the the criticism that she's going to get for being native, she's got to she almost has to wipe that out of you know of the conversation. And she definitely asserted her indigeneity throughout. You know, you know, expressing how growing up on on her on her lands with her family was incredibly important. Um, and I I even I found myself even um, identifying with some of the things that she was saying. And I was like, wow. And, and then I, ha- you know, I have to remind myself, as you said, that this is a political theater, and also that she's not there as an advocate for indigenous sovereignty, but rather that she's there as an advocate for the settler colonial agenda. And so for me, it was a little bit of a, uh, you know, it was this back and forth of like what she's saying makes me want to resonate. You know, when she's speaking that, uh, learning, you know, learning to grow corn with her grandfather made her love water and the land. And I was like, yes, I hear that. And I, and, and I could hear how, that that was true and impactful. But then, you know, five minutes later, she's also saying that um, she believes and understands how important gas and oil is to critical services and critical infrastructure of this country. And that she uh, will advocate for energy interdependence from other, you know, from the global network, but also that she doesn't think that this is going to happen overnight. Those were her exact words. You know, we can't move to clean energy overnight, that we need to move forward with innovation, but we also need to support gas and oil. And so, for, so and to, you know, so it's, it's just a reminder that there is a disconnect, that she may say a lot of these things that resonate with indigenous folks where you're like, yeah, she's here for the land. Yes, she's here for Standing Rock. And then turn around and say something uh, that she asserted multiple times is that she's uh, she even quoted in her opening statement that she's a careful steward of taxpayer dollars. Hmm. That's what she said. I'm a careful hmm. steward of taxpayer dollars and an advocate for innovation, but also understanding that gas and oil maintain critical services. So it's a great way of saying that. Uh, she may she may love the land, but she's also going to c- support the continued fracking of the land because the well, Biden and, and, administration and, has said it will continue to support fracking. Sure. And, and, and to be to be clear, I mean, when we when we talk about um, where native people fit into to all of these conversations, whether it's extractive industries or, you know, or water, we are considered the sacrifice zones. Our people are, are, are considered the acceptable collateral damage. And, and, you know, for, for anybody in the position of the government, regardless of whatever party it is, um, it is about managing the national interest. And, and we don't rate in as, as a people as a distinct people we don't rate in the national interest of the united states and even Hallen's um what will be her responsibility as it relates to not just federal lands but the claim that uh over over native lands is going to be an interesting um uh, th- that's going to be a, an interesting walk for her to walk because there are many native territories that don't consider the interior department, uh, interior department is having authority over native lands, and the what she has to assert is the is the U.S. national interest when, as it relates to uh, to native lands, not not to natives, not to our interest. I mean, that's not what her job is. Her job is is to assert the the U.S. national interest as it relates to federal lands and as it relates to the federal government being able to assert authority over native lands so that's going to be that that's going to be one hell of a challenge i also something that um also made me pretty 
uncomfortable and uh, and helped me, you know, and that I want to share with folks listening um, was uh, a little while into the hearing. I, I, I'm trying to remember the exact time because I think it's uh, for folks who may want to. I, I'm, I'm rewatching the hearing on C-SPAN. Um, so it looks like about an hour and a half in, uh, about-ish, um, you know, Senator Bernie Sanders asks her um, if she intends on supporting um, supporting indigenous folks at Oak Flat. And for those who are unaware, Oak Flat is in so-called Arizona. It's specifically on San, uh, San Carlos Apache uh, land. And it's currently being mined for copper, uh, which, of course, is creating a huge amount of uh, toxic waste, destroying the environment, does not, and in no way is con- uh, has, has this mining um, been okayed by the tribe. And there's been a number of escalating um, incidences of indigenous folks, specifically San Carlos Apache folks, holding space, refusing to allow copper miners into the space. Uh, being arrested, you know, like a, a lot of this direct action work. And Bernie Sanders asked her, asked her if her intention was to, to support, um, you know, the San Carlos Apache and, and their their right to sovereignty by refusing um, copper miners onto the space. And um, and she said that uh, that 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 issue was under the purview of the Forest Service, um, which. The second she said that, I was like, oh, no, she's going to say something disappointing. And she did. And she said she's like, well, that's technically under the purview of the Forest Service. But and this, and I quote, she said, if I have an opportunity, I will make sure that their voice is heard. And that pissed me off, as anyone can imagine. But like, even in that question, you know, where Senator Bernie Sanders, you know, the whitest man on planet Earth is advocating for Oak Flat, this this indigenous woman who has to play this political game, who has chosen to play this political game, let me clarify, who has chosen to play this political game, has said that she will, if she has the opportunity, she will make sure their voices are heard. Rather than just saying, I stand in solidarity with Oak Flat, I stand in solidarity with San Carlos Apache, with their right to exercise sovereignty and to uh, remove invasive mining, but no. Well, and, even and in that moment, clear, she didn't. <laughs> Bernie wasn't throwing this out as a as a gotcha question. I mean, no, he, not he at all. No interest in he. This wasn't. You know, you could argue whether it was a softball or not, but it was. This was one that that this was an opportunity for her. And 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 she she whiffed. I mean, and then. But the other thing is, I think people have to understand, is the biggest issue with the Interior Department is, look, there are mounds of uh, of paperwork and bureaucratic regulatory systems in place to make sure that that things are done in a certain way. And you know what, what's happened in the history of the Interior Department. Uh, and, you know, frankly, you know, various administrations along the way is how much they ignore the the, the proper um, uh, investigations that have to happen. I mean, the, you know, when you have to do a full environmental uh, review of these things, these things are being they're they're being cut off. They're they're being um, um, the whole you know, system of checks and balances being usurped. And the interior department plays a big role in that. I mean, and look, we can talk about how much the interior department, uh, the, the interior department looked the other way in uh, the Dakota access pipeline in the Keystone XL pipeline and so many other, um, uh, you know, parts of this, this fossil fuel infrastructure and extractive in, in, uh, uh, industry infrastructure. But that's what we see. So really, you know, the best that that we could expect from Deborah Hallen is that she's going to make sure that the existing laws that that frankly are inadequate will make sure that, you know, that according to their process, the right reviews are done. But what gets missed in all of this stuff, in spite of hearing the Biden administration making overtures about um, consultation, which is not the same thing as consent. 
You know, and, and you know, and I've talked about this before. Every time I hear, whether it was the Obama administration or now the, the Biden administration, talk about, well, we're going to make sure that that we we hold regular, you know, tribal consultation uh, meetings, and that you know, and and that we we hear their voices. But hearing our voices is not the same thing as responding to uh, you know to our concerns. Nor is it is it the same as getting consent from us to do these things like Oak Flats and like some of these pipelines and some of these these other you know disastrous um, uh, projects that you know in, involved in, uh, in in these extractive industries and and so I think it's important that that we're not going to see you know some great change because a native person you know or or because they're a woman is is in this position. I, I, you know, in, in spite of what she's had to go through through this hearing with, with with some of these racist, you know, kind of approaches to to her identity and and the misogyny that she's had to withstand going through, especially at the hands of the Republicans, it is absolutely, you, you know, this is where she's she is not going to be in a position, uh, you know, of power to make. Um, you know, real dramatic change. And, and at the end of the day, she serves at the pleasure of Joe Biden. And it is the, going to be the, Obi- the Biden administration's agenda that she that she promotes. Well, I also think that it's it's I also think that it's important that folks understand that, like. The amount the questioning that she received, I, I really do recommend it is a, quite a lot, but I do recommend that folks at least watch some of it and probably not the highlights because they're less likely to show um, a lot of the uh, the misogynist and like and sexist and like overtly anti-Indian things that are said um, mm. or even a lot of it are just microaggressions. It's not overt. It's not like they're just, you know, <laughs> uh, they say something extremely racist. It's all underhanded. So I do recommend that people watch it because it is important that folks understand that even as um, indigenous people who choose to participate, who participate in assimilationist politics are still othered within those politics. It's not as if we succeed or uh, it is not as if we are even supported. And that is where tokenization really falls. That's why this conversation of tokenization and representation is so important because and even as you said, like she's not going to make these groundbreaking changes, but also because the system would not allow for that to happen. You know, there's a, right. a system of, quote unquote, checks and balances that would not allow for a radical change. But she's not advocating for a radical change either way. But I think something that really uh, that made me laugh because it, it was so irksome was um, one of the uh, one of the Republican senators. And of course, now I can't remember his name, even though it's probably somewhere in my notes. Every time he asked her a question, he kept hammering home that she would be eighth in line for the presidency, um, which I thought was just such an absurd thing to bring up. They were like, well, you know, like you would be eighth in line for the presidency if something were to happen, which makes no sense to be bringing up in in a hearing about interior politics, about the environment, about, you know, like about maintaining infrastructure like none of that his comment consistently reminding her that she could have more power if something horrible were to happen was so degrading and i actually enjoyed watching her respond because she wouldn't respond to that because it was such an absurd thing to consistently bring up but but the reason that it was brought up was because even if she is confirmed as secretary of the interior those white Republican men are so uncomfortable with an indigenous woman navigating settler colonial politics. They don't even want her at the table, that they have to consistently remind her that she could at some point there would be a chance for her to be president. And therefore, they cannot support her as a person advocating for, you know, these very, very limited changes. So I found that to be a very interesting microaggression to consistently be exercised by this one particular senator, as if at some point in history, um, all seven other cabinet members are killed first and the secretary of the interior becomes president, as if that has ever happened. Um, it was an interesting moment to, to, to witness. Well, yeah, and and I think you know your your suggestion that people watch this stuff I think is is well founded, but I, I think you have to understand that if you do watch these hearings, you have to consider 
what has been the American policy for 200 years? I mean, if you don't understand, you know, how Native people have been not just treated, but how we've been viewed for 200 years, you know, as, you know, again, ignorant savages uh, or merciless Indian savages, as Thomas Jefferson, uh, you know, proclaimed, ignorant savages, as Ben Franklin proclaimed. But but every step along the way, we were always, you know, being, you know, preached to that we either needed to become like them or we had we had to be destroyed. I mean, that's literally you know, Senator Harland, uh, you know, uh, uh, suggested is that we we needed to to either join the you know uh, the rest of civilization or be destroyed. And so these questions are oftentimes really framed around this challenge whether she has whether she has been successfully civilized or not and 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 i i don't think that can be missed and or ignored no i don't think it can be either really uh i think there's a lot to unpack with these with these hearings in terms of not just us be, you know you know you and i are very critical of settler colonial politics obviously and also very critical of indigenous folks that participate in settler colonial politics so I think that there's a lot to be seen here, but I did. There were moments where I really, truly could see how unwelcome she was in that space because right. she was a threat. And it's incredible. It's a reminder, honestly, to to me as someone who is so overtly critical of of her career for a number of reasons to to see this and still be like. Dang, y'all can't even accept the most liberal of us. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and by liberal, meaning um, Americanized. <laughs> yeah, Americanized. I mean, I mean, because yeah. you know, no matter how assimilated we are, we are still not going to. It, it will never be enough for them. Is is I guess truly you know, kind of what you're really saying here, and 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 that's absolutely true. I mean, look. You know, military family background. I mean, she's been involved in in basically, you know, sure, it's democratic politics, but she's been involved in the American political system, you know, since, you know, since her younger days. I mean, uh, and and she is she's you know, I think she's a Catholic. I mean, and, and she's made made that very clear in, you know, in, in the past that she has conformed both spiritually, both, you know, patriotically, you know, uh, multi you know multi-generationally i mean and and yet she's still going to withstand this you know this kind of interrogation and again to be clear it's both because she's native and because she's a woman that's why she's experiencing this stuff yes absolutely and um i do want to say that i was appreciative that she did bring up um mmiw missing and murdered indigenous women during this uh you know, during her hearings, of course, I challenge her to to get with the program and realize that MMIW is is MMIW G2ST includes girls, trans people, and two spirit folks, and to really and expand bo- and that boys definition. for that matter, and, and and men, yeah, exactly. So, no, I I, yeah, think, so. I think that's absolutely true. Yeah, yeah. All right, hey, we're the, we're the bottom of the hour. So when I when I do come back, I want to talk about. I've got to talk about the Interior Department, you know, even leading up to this point, because there is just a major failing, especially in what has become such a, a you know major major part of much of native landscape, which is the gaming industry. It is an industry that has, you know, as much as I have my own issues with it, it has it has changed. Um, at least finances and and the the system of public finance on native territories in a, in a dramatic fashion, but there's been such a failing of the Interior Department over the last 30 years since the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act was uh, was passed into law. So I want to talk about that and then bring it bring it literally bring it home because I'm speaking to you from Seneca Territory about how it's uh, impacting that failure and uh, you know has is impacting the Seneca Nation, the Seneca people and uh, and its relationship here in New York State. So we'll we'll talk about that when we come back. Reg, you can take us out and uh, we'll be we'll be right back. All right. <laughs> Thanks for coming back. And I got to wish a, a happy 80th birthday 
to Buffy St. Marie, who just uh, birthday yes. yesterday. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> incredible stuff there. So uh, I, I just got to put it out there. I do want to remind people again that we are listener-supported radio, and if you are listening to us in Washington, D.C., I encourage you to go to uh, WPFW's um, website, which is WPFWFM.org. Make a contribution to the station in the name of this show. If you are listening to us uh, in New York City, I encourage you to go to give to wbai.org and again follow the prompts make a donation in the name of resistance radio with uh, with john and regan uh you can also go to wbai.org and follow the prompts from there and i sure would appreciate that um yeah so let me let me get get into it so the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act gets passed in 1988, and it got passed almost as a knee-jerk reaction to a Supreme Court decision the year prior, which is called the Cabazon case, where the state of California was trying to shut down a native um, a high-stakes bingo. So it wasn't even Class 3 gaming. It was Class 2 gaming in California. And the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Cabazons, basically said, look, state of California, if you've got gaming regulated gaming then native people can have regulated gaming and and that's kind of the way the ruling went and the knee-jerk reaction that came from congress was well we better do something quick because otherwise this is going to open up the opportunity for class three gaming and you know casino gaming essentially across you know quote-unquote indian country and you know and of course what they said publicly what they were concerned about was organized crime coming into into native territories and and alongside with that they also thought that native people needed protections from overly aggressive states as as a really you know and let's face it it was it was born out of a supreme court ruling where a state was trying to shut down native gaming so you know they claimed that they were going to be protecting native people from organized crime and state government, which oftentimes is the same thing, but uh, well, that's a, that's another topic. Um, so that's that's 1988. In 2002, the Seneca Nation opens up its first gaming facility. So they open it up, and, and they um, they in order to do it under the terms of the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, they have to enter into a gaming compact, which is basically sharing some regulatory controls over their gaming with the state, which is what the the, the uh, Indian Gaming Regulatory Act um, uh, prescribes. So they enter into a gaming compact with uh, with the state of New York. Now, keep in mind that according to the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, the states can't tax native gaming. They, they are entitled to no revenue from native gaming for, you know, you know, for allowing it or for cooperating with uh, um, you know, with a compact that they, they can't they have no <laughs> stake in this thing. They are not stakeholders of native gaming. However, the uh, the Interior Department did say uh, as it related to this uh, to the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, and they are the um, the the agency involved in enforcing the uh, Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. They said, however, if a state does concede, does make a concession of something, of value, uh, they can give to a native gaming operation um, a concession and in exchange receive you know, a, 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 a revenue sharing um, percentage that would be somewhat equal to the value of what their concession was. Now, I, I know I'm, I'm hedging a little bit. Most of the time that concession has to do with some some form of exclusivity. So whether it's a state says, we will let you do gaming or, or, or support your gaming and, and, and we won't compete against you. Well, that's kind of what New York suggested. What they said was in the 15 counties of Western New York, the, the Seneca Nation would not experience any direct competition. And then they, um, <laughs> then they went and turned around and competed against them. They they opened up racetrack casinos where they filled these these dying racetracks, um, gaming establishments regulated by the state with slot parlors. And so immediately the this idea that the Seneca Nation would have this these exclusivity zone or this exclusivity zone was was breached, you know, almost almost out of the gate. So what happened was the uh, the Senecas withheld payment um, for a period of time and to the tune of six hundred million dollars. And then finally, they reached a settlement with, with New York and they gave them four hundred million dollars and kept two hundred million. And 
the reason they did that, and this was in 2013 when they reached the settlement, the reason they did that was because they were concerned if they didn't do it, that the state would not renew its compact in 2016, and that would leave all kinds of questions about whether the casino could operate in the first place. So I bring all this up, up and, and, and again, I'm stopping right there at 2016, because the Interior Department, in 30 years of IGRA now, has failed to answer just you know a, a few basic questions and one of the basic questions is what happens if a state decides it doesn't want to renew a gaming compact does that mean a, a native uh, gaming facility has to close and you know what the interior department can answer this question now see what happened you know coming out of the gate also with, with igra was there was a provision in igra that said if a state doesn't want to negotiate in good faith to do a gaming compact um that uh, that a native territory native people could uh, could sue the state that got stripped out of igra and, and the state of florida said look that that violates you know our state sovereignty you can't you you can't subject us to that and so that got stripped away so the recourse a native territory would have if a state did fail to negotiate in good faith got taken away and nothing was ever put back in its place there was some speculation that the the you know they could work something out with the feds but nothing is ever uh, nothing concrete was ever put in place so this idea that that once a gaming operation was was opened and billions of dollars oftentimes was sunk into these things, there was a, this big question about whether a state could pull the plug on them simply by saying, "Now nah, you had enough," we, and uh, or in the case of revenue sharing, saying, "We don't like what we're getting from your revenue sharing, so we're going to pull the plug." And if you and if you want us not to pull the plug, then you need to continue revenue sharing, whether you're getting something of value from us or not. That's where the Seneca Nation, you know, had been, you know, right up until in, in, until 2016. They were paying and they paid a billion and a half dollars to the state of New York in that first 14 years of their of their gaming compact with New York. And they sure didn't get anything near that value in terms of their so-called exclusivity. Now, the other thing I want to say is when they paid that four hundred million dollars in 2013, nothing changed about the percentage that the Seneca's had to pay or that the, the state had to shut down its operations that were competing directly against them. But here's what the Seneca's viewed. What their view was, if we get the state to renew the compact in 2016, one of the things that is clear is that there is no language in the renewal provision of the compact that suggests that they would have to continue to pay past 2016 or into 2017 and beyond. So the Seneca Nation says, all right, we'll, we'll pay. We'll pay up to 2016 or through 2016. But we're not. And, and what they said to themselves was we're not going to pay in 2017 and we're not going to pay going forward. And the state said, well, no, you have to. You've got to keep paying. You know, and but and the Seneca said, but there's no language that talks about any payment schedule past 2016. So it goes into arbitration, and the two white guys uh, who sit in, the, in as judges there ruled against the one native guy and said, no, it's it, it. There's there's enough of a suggestion or an implication in the game and compact that uh, that the Senecas have to continue to pay, and the Senecas still haven't paid. So now we're we're at twenty we're twenty twenty one, and the Seneca still have not paid. So now this this amount of over four hundred million dollars has accumulated once again, and there still has not been any um, uh, addressing from the Interior Department on uh, this kind of extortion that that revenue sharing has become. And with this ruling from this arbitration panel. What they have essentially done is is redefined and added language to the Seneca's gaming compact, which, again, the Interior Department should should have to approve. So what, what the Seneca's are, are dealing with right now are three questions. One is, can an arbitration panel add language to a compact without approval from the Interior Department? Couldn't get an answer. Still can't get an answer. Two, can a revenue sharing agreement that does not meet the federal standards, which says that, a, that the state has to offer a concession that is both substantial and quantifiable, and by substantial has to be equal to what they're, you know, somewhat equal to in value to what they're getting in terms of revenue sharing. If not, it's it it violates the law. So does the Interior Department look at that? And they haven't. And three, can revenue sharing essentially be a part of an extortion scheme where if, if, a, if a native territory does not provide revenue sharing agreements with the state, that um, the state can simply shut them down by, by walking away from a gaming compact. 30 years into IGRA, we don't have questions to, to these answers. And so 
right now the Senecas have lost every legal challenge that that they've thrown up to try to stop from paying this over $400 million, including a, a ruling in the appeals court just uh, a couple of days ago. But really what the Senecas were hoping was that they could finally get the Interior Department to address it. But the Interior Department ignored it through, you know, through Obama. They ignored it through Trump. And right now, it appears that the Seneca Nation does not have enough confidence in the upcoming Interior Department to believe that they can somehow get the Interior Department to finally step up and do their job on this thing. And so it looks like the Seneca Nation is going to have to pay $430 million to the state of New York, even as they are suffering from this uh, from this this pandemic and has you know has really affected their business and so now they've got to look at what programs they have to cut within the Seneca Nation territory even as the state is lobbying for more federal dollars from the uh, you know to, to help during the pandemic and 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 they are not saddled with the, I mean to be clear for the Seneca Nation gaming is their almost singular means of public finance they don't have any other way I mean, they don't they don't have a whole you know system of, of taxes from property taxes to sale taxes to, you know, to all of these other states, uh, state fees and, um, uh, you know, and, and surcharges that come and come to the state. No, they, they don't have that. They just had gaming and the state is going to squeeze them for over four hundred million dollars. So. What does this have to, deb- to do with Deb Hallam? Well, apparently, you know, whether it's through the legal advice that the Seneca Nation is getting or their own lack of confidence that anything's going to change regardless of who's sitting as the, the secretary, it looks like the Senecas are going to be forced to have to pay this thing. And and that's a problem. And, and it's also a problem because the other questions about extortion going forward for for gaming revenue and what happens if a state walks away from a from a gaming compact none of that has been addressed and this is something that the interior department not only has the power but they have the responsibility to do so i bring this thing up because the senecas are really facing some tough times um with with their means of public finance and and look, it's a Democratic governor. So, you know, this is what we always we go. We, we have to remind people <laughs> that our challenges come from the right and the left. So regardless of where Deb Hallam fits, you know, see, you know, sits herself in terms of her bipartisanship between Republicans, and Democrats. Look, we can get screwed from either one. But anyway, that's my long winded explanation about why I think the Interior Department does matter. Not because I think we're asking for something, but because they are not fulfilling their own jobs as it relates to enforcing their laws against their states. I, well, I, when you when you um, when you said that you wanted to discuss this on the show, so I, I like looked I looked up what I could find online, and I really you know I have little to add in in terms of um, in terms of your 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 sharing and your assessment, but what what I do feel is just so <laughs> so absurd is that an indigenous community would ever owe money to the settler colonial government like that just <laughs> so absurd and i laugh to keep from crying because how can seneca nation be expected to pay off literally hundreds of millions of dollars um Something and, that and, is still maintain, just... and still maintain their commitments to their people. I mean, and that's yes. that's what's so so absurd. And and to be clear, they don't owe the money. I mean, this is really a power play. Um, you know, and and when people ask, well, you know, but but it, the courts ruled. Look, the courts were always going to rule against the Seneca Nation. Why? Because in their compact, they agreed that arbitration would be used to settle disputes. And uh, and that courts were not one of the recourses. So, I mean, more, most courts could just throw it out just, just just because the Seneca's agreed to arbitration. But regardless of agreeing to arbitration, what's missing in this whole thing is is the dereliction of responsibility from the Interior Department. And it goes back, you know, like I said, back to, you know, even to Bill Clinton. But from the Seneca standpoint, most of this this battle in the in the first round of revenue sharing fights was through the Obama administration. So this hasn't ever been addressed. And 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 here's what I will say about Deb Haaland though. 
she has gaming experience. She, you know, one of her jobs, she didn't serve on uh, for the uh, on council or anything for the Laguna Pueblo, but she did manage, you know, part of their economic development, which involved gaming. And New Mexico is one of the states that has been overtly aggressive towards native gaming. Um, many states have, but o- Oklahoma and New Mexico come to mind, and of course, the state of New York. So she has the background, and the question is, does she have the will to ever address this thing? Because previous administrations haven't, previous uh, interior departments haven't. And and this does cross the line where she's going to have to, you know, if, if she were to do so, it's not just Republican governors that she would, she'd be, you know, essentially, you know, call, uh, holding the task. It would be, uh, you know, a prominent, <laughs> one of the most prominent Democratic governors in uh, in Andrew Cuomo. So this is, this is a big challenge. And, and I don't know if if Seneca Nation's legal counsel are saying don't expect much, or whether the you know whether the Seneca Nation themselves uh, are, are lack the courage to to advance this issue and and have the Interior Department. I mean that's what they've called for. That's what they've called for for decades with the Interior Department. But I think if they've whether they've lost any confidence, regardless of whether a Native person is in the Interior Secretary position or not. It, this is a this is pretty devastating and and you know and I think the fact that nobody brought this up in the hearings and and as far as I know there has been no direct conversation about revenue sharing with any aspect of the uh, of the Biden administration and certainly not with the Interior Department I mean it just seems like I, I would love to give her a shot to do the right thing here but Apparently, I don't even know if she's going to get, have the opportunity, at least as it relates to this $400 million. We'll see what it looks like going forward. But no, you're right. This is it is absurd that the Seneca Nation is going to is, is really going to be squeezed for another $400 million after they. And again, I, you know, I've got to say it because it sounds almost unbelievable. In the 14 years from 2002 to 2016, the the Seneca Nation paid to the state of New York. One, it was actually just over 1.4 billion. That's that's a B, folks. 1.4 billion dollars. Now, some of that came back to Western New York to the municipalities of of uh, Buffalo, Niagara Falls, and the city of Salamanca, and they just balanced their budgets with. It. They didn't do anything that enhanced tourism or anything else. But and 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 shame on those mayors for taking the view that they want the Seneca Nation to pay. $400 million, so what, $100 million can come back? They're ignoring the fact that their economies are being adversely affected by this graft that is happening, you know, by the, the state of New York um, to, uh, you know, against the, uh, the Seneca Nation. Well, I hope that we can see some sort of, I mean, I'm curious to see personally how this evolves or devolves, um, mostly because if this, you know, this is clearly this is a, this is a huge issue, uh, not just, you know, of course for Seneca Nation, but also for all Indigenous people who should be paying attention to this. I think it's a reminder that folks, a lot of folks, including myself, don't know a lot about gaming, don't know a lot um, about these laws that so often negatively affect our communities uh, in terms of having to pay the settler colonial government any sort of any sort of money at all. It just blows my mind. Uh, so I am curious to see if this will be brought up. I doubt it will be brought up in the confirmation hearings, but I'm interested to see how this is handled by Deb Howland if she Absolutely. is confirmed because it is a big deal. Well, and it, it, it is a much bigger deal to the native territories, again, that rely as on this as their sole source of public finance. Exactly. And, and, and especially many of these native territories have reduced any dependency that they've had on the federal government or, or certainly any state governments um, you know, that they may have been entitled to because they have tried to use this as an assertion of sovereignty and independence. And the, and the crazy part is even though the laws prohibit states from taxing them, this, you know, this abuse in terms of revenue sharing that that the Interior Departments have turned a blind eye to, has allowed these states to extort billions of dollars. I mean, when when all is said and done, if what the the current condition stands, the the Seneca Nation will have, you know, by the time they get to 2023, which is the next renewal date, they will have paid 
they will have paid $2 billion to the state of New York, $2 billion. And, and if they don't agree to continue to pay, then the, the, the state will, imp, through implication or, or direct threat, threaten to shut them down by walking away from a gaming compact, which is supposedly uh, um, um, necessary, required by uh, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, even with the absence of, uh, of any commitment from the interior departments over the last 30 years to, to answer some of these basic questions about the power that the state should have over native gaming. Well, let's see if Howland's up for the challenge. <laughs> we shall see. You know, and it is one of the few things that I, that I, I expect her to do. And, and, and I'm not, I can't say how hopeful I am, but it is one of the few things that certainly all she has to do is her job. All the Interior Department mm. and the Bureau of Indian Affairs has to do is their job. They don't have to do, the, They there's no new laws required. There's no new systems of regulatory controls that need to be required. They just simply need to do the job, the job that hasn't been done in 30 years since Iger has been passed. So that's, you know, that is really, you know, my biggest issue right now, because look, I'm, I'm impacted by what the health of the Seneca Nation. I mean, it's a it's a big deal to to the people here. They you know they rely on on some supplemental income from uh, you know from from gaming. They it's it's the biggest employer that they have, and all of their programs are funded by this thing, including you know programs for elders and for uh, for pre K and all that stuff comes from this thing. So it is a it is a huge deal here, and look, there's nothing to suggest that you know especially we we know that gaming's not pandemic proof. We know that it's not recession proof and we know that it that, you know that in spite of whatever claims exclusivity are supposed to be uh, you know uh, uh, given we, states have have really upped the ante when it comes to uh, to gaming whether it's lottery systems whether it's sports betting whether it's their own involvement in slot parlors and casinos there's no question that the, that the Seneca the Seneca Nation has a significant competition in this uh, in this field, and as long as they have to be squeezed by the state, it makes them less competitive. Well, I also think well, that it's important before, as we wrap up, um, since we are now coming to an end. I think it's important that you bring up just how impactful uh, how impactful this is, because in her opening statement, Deb Haaland just continued to hammer home. Um, how important it was that she values career employees and also specifically how much she values jobs and doesn't want to take jobs away. And this is a reminder that this is one of those instances where she really has the opportunity to stick with what she is saying. Absolutely. But we shall see if it happens. We'll see. Look, everybody, thanks for listening. Uh, for, for John and Regan, I thank you for listening to the Resistance Radio. We'll be back, we'll be back next week. Yahweh.